Welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773's Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Comedy on Power Talk, thank you so much for making us part of your day today. And um, really, uh, what a high honor it is to bring in <clears throat> my next guest. Uh, we just connected on new media, but, um, you know, being born in 1978 and uh, and never having a chance to see the Grateful Dead in a live context, um, one of the things that was galvanizing when I did start to collect analog tapes in the late 90s um, was this uh, gravitation towards uh, psycho-spiritual healing uh, within the concerts that um, was partially due to psychedelics and partially due to the fact that this was essentially a bunch of skiffle players um, playing as if their life depended on it uh, every night. I mean, the one thing I can say about the Grateful Dead is that uh, they did fall off the rails quite a bit, but when they hit it, um, and they did that more often than not and got better over time, uh, it was magical. And one of the books that I have spent hours and hours and hours uh, reading was this uh, dead base book and uh, this catalog of set lists reviews of shows and the pocket of time that I love in the early 80s is so intoxicating and um, just reading about people that were there um, the kind of experiences just kind of the sketch uh, because people were you know clearly altered but still it was mind-blowing for somebody and gave me this realization and this fantasy uh, and, you know, over the last 10 years, I've interviewed everybody from Bill Cosby to Dave Brubeck, uh, you know, to Charles Lloyd, to to Bob Weir. But I have had a loyal commitment to um, this group of merry pranksters known as the Grateful Dead. And this, my guest, not only has co-authored all these incredible books, he's also uh, a librarian and an archivist for the state of California and when I saw his last name, it took me a minute to register. And I said, oh, my God, this is the cat that wrote the book. Literally, I had chunks of the book falling out because it was read so much. Michael Dolgushkin, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Well, thanks for having me here. It uh, sounds like I've uh, been in some good company, too. A little bit, man. I mean, part. would you say 
in life that it's better to be lucky than good. <laughs> you know, and, I, I, and what, I, what I say that is, what, the reason I say that is because I, you were born at, in my mind, uh, the greatest time you could have possibly been born in it. I mean, you were essentially a wide-eyed high schooler in, in the mid to late 60s, and by the time you were an adult, I mean, that was arguably the greatest period of music in, in, in the history of, of, of possibly the world, but definitely in this country. Well, yeah, I would say luck uh, definitely entered into that, uh, you know, because, uh, I mean, you know, certainly I didn't plan that, but uh, I lucked out and <laughs> uh, got to hear the greatest music uh, in the history of the world as it was being made, yes. Can you talk about how that's affected you over time? I mean, for me, the last year, being a, a rogue journalist and somebody who goes on the road a lot to support my friends and heal through music and do a lot of uh, live interviews, um, video interviews, um, it's been very hard for me and I'm sure many people to not be able to get off through communal spiritual healing uh, through live music. But I mean, live music, the presentation, the unorthodox nature of it, quite frankly, the unpredictability of the sound systems, how did it, has it affected you uh, spiritually and psychically, even to this day that, I mean, it's so hard for me to believe that at Stony Brook University, I grew up in Stony Brook, and 10 years, uh, essentially, I think in 1971, I mean, they had like 75 or more concerts at Pritchard Gym. Uh, of all the the heaviest cats, because it was the it was the closest place from the Fillmore East that Graham would allow a concert. I, I mean, the the it, how did it affect your psycho spiritual nature? Well, I mean, since I really heavily got into music, I mean, I'd always loved music. Uh, my mom listened to uh, uh, classical music when I was growing up, and I always loved that and. Uh, and uh, my dad, uh, he, he liked to turn the radio on to, well, it was in the, in San Francisco, we had a local station called KSFO, which was uh, played a lot of, I don't know if pop hits is the right word, uh, more uh, kind of uh, more sophisticated, sometimes quirky music than that. Right, but, uh, right. You know, that was very interesting. And, and Like of course, what kind of music? Of like what, what kind of quirky music? Oh, I would say uh, like Sandy Bull, uh, or like, or like like the Kings. No, 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 nothing like that. But stuff like uh, Concrete and Clay by the Unit Four Plus Two, or whatever oh they were called. Oh my God, it's way off the grid. Yeah, stuff like that. Wow. Uh, you know the, the 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 Tijuana Brass, of course, they would play, and then stuff like you know Frank Sinatra or whatever. You know, um, you know, you know, you know good vocalists right sure and of course a lot of that did and a lot of what they played of course overlapped with uh, with the uh, uh, with the top 40 stations too because what uh, what people i think what what a lot of younger people don't seem to realize is that the uh, stations that teenagers listened to back in those days didn't strictly play rock and roll they played whatever was popular that week no, it was it was much more of the Duke Ellington school of it's all music, no genres. It's all it's all music, right? Right. That's the thing that and I try after, to bring to my yeah. Go ahead. Uh, I mean, uh, 
you know, on, uh, say, like in the summer of 67 on KFRC in San Francisco, you could hear Nancy Sinatra, no, James Brown, followed by Nancy Sinatra, followed by Country Joe and the Fish. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, that's the, not only, that's, that was the advent of, of freeform radio, which is just so beautiful, uh, where you could literally hear the Mahavishnu Orchestra, followed by, you know, Glenn Gould into, you know, Dixie Louis Armstrong or something. I mean, it was just, it, yeah, it was, sure. and, mm-hmm. and, and how do you, if you can articulate it, um, I mean, I just, a big, a big issue for me is that I just believe labels in general have stratified music or n- the ability for new musical vocabulary to be created. And I just wonder how, if it gave you a more tolerant and open view of music, because even though you didn't know it at the time, there were really no restrictions. In an hour, you could hear all genres of music on a, on a station. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and then I always, I mean, I, I, always, I always felt that way about music. Uh, I, always, I, always, I always loved music, uh, you know, no matter, you know, no matter what, uh, you know, what the genre or label or pigeonhole people want to put it in. Um, but it was, it, was know, discernibly, it was discernibly less so in, in your time. Like, they weren't, like, I, me and you I could walk down so. the street. We could walk down the street today and ask 20 people what their definition of jazz is, and you get 20 different answers. I mean, sure, you know, it's, sure. I, I just, it, 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 there was something, and, and I guess maybe more to the point, I mean, you were not only simultaneously inge- uh, ingesting this music on the radio, but then cats like Chet Helms and, and Bill Graham were fostering the live version of this with Malo, the Sons of Champlin, and, you know, Country Joe, or, you know, Sly Stone, the Preservation Hall Jazz Band, and Miles. I mean, you you know, it was it was on the radio, and it was live, right? I mean, that to me was magic. Mm-hmm. That's magic. I mean, that's, yes. you know, that's... Yes. Unbel- Did Are you, looking back on it, can you talk about if it was really that magical? I mean, it, to us, to my generation, younger, it's like... It's humbling because if you, any major music festival now, they're not, they're going with what's popular and hot with the younger cats, which, you know, I guess, I mean, it's, it's a lot, like you could go to a blues festival and there's not one black band, or you could go to a jazz con- uh, festival and it's all R&B. It's not what the, even the genre, it's just what, what sells. I just, maybe you could put us back. And just talk, or even in hindsight, how magical for somebody who was not a musician, but just was really just, I mean, it must, you must have been a kid in a candy store. Well, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was certainly magical to me at the time, so much so that, I mean, music has been like the core of my life ever since, right? (laughs) Everything's revolved around that, uh. I mean, I'm a poster artist too, by the way. No, no I, I mean, we're going to get into it. No, I mean, that's it. But, okay. but you would say that, but, but, yeah, go ahead. But anyway, um, yeah, it was, um, you know, I, and a lot of it was, and at first, of course, it was listening to the, when I really got into it, of course, it was first on the radio and records because I was in high school. Okay. And, uh, uh, you know, my Dad wouldn't let me go to live shows right away, um, and I wasn't quite brave enough to sneak out. But then, little by little, I started to do that. 
So I think when it was really the I missed the beginning of it. I mean, I was just way too young at that time. Absolutely. Of the but uh, and but I don't I don't mean in fairness. If I was if, in fairness, if I was with you, um, it would take a lot of balls to go into the Fillmore district when it was an all black district to see. Uh, I mean, that's where the rubber meets the road. There were only three white cats that would go in there when Charles Sullivan was. Uh, was running the district. It was Bill Evans, Vince Garaldi, and Chet Baker. You know, I mean, you didn't, mm -hmm. you did not. It wasn't that it was. I mean, I'm sure the vibe was incredible. But as a younger kid, I, I would have been pretty intimidated to. I would assume you never went into the. You never accessed the Fillmore district pre Bill Graham. Barely. What is barely? What, mean, what is barely? Road, that means road, it sounds. Road, 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 yeah. road, road the bus through there <laughs> occasionally. No, okay. Yeah. So, so I mean, I mean, from or a cold. Sometimes, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. No, no, we didn't go. We didn't go walking around there. No. Uh -uh. What was your first musical experience in the Fillmore District? In the Fillmore District? Or just, yeah. Well, I guess that would have yeah. to be, well, I guess that would have to be Winter, Winterland was right, was right by there. Yep. And my first experience in Winterland was, um, yeah, October 9th, 1972, the Grateful Dead Roadies benefit. Uh, what was it? So tell me about, tell me about leading up to it. Uh, why, you know, how exposed you were to the, to the, to the dead? Because, you know, we all know that their records never really translated over live, but why don't you just talk about that? Well, I, oh, go, I'm, I'm sorry. I keep interrupting you. No, no, um, it's, it, we're, I, this is great. It's a jam. So you can go any, you can go off anywhere. It was a roadie benefit. Why were they doing a roadie benefit? Oh, uh, because to write to, because uh, they wanted to, the roadies wanted to buy a house. I love this. <laughs> they wanted so to buy. Had, this was, is so great. Them, the roadies the, wanted to buy. the new yeah. riders. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. But that was my second Dead concert. My first Dead concert was at Berkeley Community Theater the previous August 22nd. Oh, my God. And, yeah, I was well familiar with the band by that time. I had all their records. I even had a couple of live tapes. <laughs> so I was familiar with the band, and I knew. Uh, so when I saw them, I mean, I knew everything that they played, uh, except for what hadn't been released yet. And even some of that I was a little bit familiar with. That is absolutely phenomenal. Would, would you, I mean, I know you are, you know, like an art, like you have a lot of skills. You're not a musician, but I mean, were you aware or was it evident, not that it mattered, but w were you aware that, that most of the band outside of probably Phil Garcia was a was a ridiculous musician, but not academically trained. I, I mean, they were all skiffle players, basically. Were, were you aware that they that this was a phenomena of? I mean, outside of the Sons of Champlin, most of those bands—Jefferson Airplane, uh, Chipolina—not so much, but most bands were basically just picking up instruments and learning on the bandstand. Was that evident to you? Hmm. I think I was. I think I, I was sort of aware of that. I may become more aware of it later on when I started to know the history more, history of the scene more. Right. What was it like at that time? Yeah. I mean, like, like in terms of, um, 
you know, the excitement and, and just in, in general, what, what, you know, for somebody that never saw the band, I have this fantasy uh, of this certain period of time that we can get into later that your book helped. So your, one of your books, I mean, I was obsessing about this stuff and it, it you were, it was so helpful is the early eighties, but I don't want to necessarily get into that mm-hmm. right now. I'm just curious about, um, you know, the, the, the culture and the scene that surrounded the group and, and maybe you're, um, were you a deadhead or were you just, I mean, cause I, I've seen posters, you know, yeah. clearly you had, you know, you had a big brother poster. I mean, there was so much great music, but were you, was there something different about, about that band? Yeah, there was, um, and it's, I mean, I don't know if I can describe what it was exactly, but they are, they would, they just, I mean, I liked all the bands. I liked mm-hmm. all the bands, mm-hmm. but when I got into the dead, I mean, it really, really drew me in. They just seemed, it was so, just so interesting and multifaceted. And, uh, I just, I just, uh, I, it's hard to explain why. What was multifaceted? Uh, what was multifaceted? What do you mean by that? Well, their music was multifaceted, and their performances were multifaceted. They were unpredictable. Right. Right. You never knew where they were going to go, and it seemed like they broke. In those days, it seemed like they broke new ground at every show. I remember. I remember David Nelson in our interview. <clears throat> one of our interviews, he said that um literally in 65 this is a little before by the way how do you pronounce your last name dolgushkin or dolgushkin 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 it was before dolgushkin hit the scene but i mean in 65 when they were getting up there and they'd play like one long i mean at the end they might play a a long psychedelic tune and there were the the audience was leaving in droves (laughs) like nelson would be behind Uh the stacks behind the speakers with Parrish, watching these people leave. And there are a lot of promoters would say to Garcia, you know, why don't you just throw in this cover tune, you know, make it more amenable to the audience. And, and Jerry's like, ah, eh, what's the point? Mm-hmm. You know, like, and, and by 70, like you said, they were breaking new ground every show. So it took, I mean, yeah. that is on, that is one of the coolest and organic musical things that probably ever occurred in in our musical history. I mean, were you hooked? I mean, I think it's so funny because you hear people that are deadheads, you know, and like people say, well, that's all they listen to. Although for me, I have a large palette and I am far from an ethnomusicologist. I love listening to all kinds of music and I love the grateful Mm -hmm. dead. Was that, do you feel like a lot of, is that sort of a stereotype? Do you feel, do you feel like, cause I mean, you're somebody, yeah, I think it's a stereotype. I listen to lots of other music besides The Grateful Dead. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I have a big collection of music at home. All kinds of music. And and So I think yeah. that's a stereotype, yes. And exactly. And, and, and even at that time, were you... I'm just going to... I mean, again, a freak like me would have been going to Jackson Sutter to see jazz or the jazz workshop basin street west i mean there was caesars mm-hmm. um all these ridiculous pl- i mean dude you go see latin funk you go to broadway and see all these re- i mean there were it was like 
the mo- it was beyond just the jam band stuff or whatever we know as jam band. Did oh, you? Yeah, yeah. What what other what other like outside of the what other little niches did you if if you did um, uh, seek out because it was just like it was, you couldn't help you were just marinating in all this. You know, I, I know that mm-hmm. like. Um, well, I mean, so many cats. Coltrane would come to the to the workshop, or or the mm-hmm. Blackhawk was. What, what kind of other music were you taking in live at that time? Well, I mean, I did. I mean, I I went to see other bands that played, say, at Winterland or Berkeley Community Theater. Yeah, I saw the Mahavishnu Orchestra back then. I saw the Kinks a couple times. I saw the Butterfield Blues Band. That was something to see. Beautiful. Um, you know, I saw, uh, you know, I saw a lot of that sort of thing. But then um, I, I was going to, um, I was going to a lot of jazz shows. Then I saw, uh, uh, you know, a key, uh, Keystone, uh, the old Keystone Corner on Vallejo Street. Dude, Todd Barkin saw, is a dear friend of mine, dude. I cannot. That mm-hmm. is so. So you were there after Freddie Herrera owned it, and Todd. Yeah, it was. I a, was there after Freddie Herrera owned it. Yeah, I never went there before that, but I went there. Yeah, after Freddie after after Todd Barkin. I haven't got this. the place. Oh, and this is great. I saw McCoy Tyner there. I saw Alice Coltrane there. Oh, I so saw, I, yeah, that that was amazing. Um, um, you know, I saw Sun Ra a few times. Um, I saw, yeah, I saw all kinds of people. So yeah, I was. Uh, uh, who did I see? Jack Dejanet, Freddie Hubbard. Uh, um, yeah, you saw them all. You uh, saw them all. You saw. I mean, you, yeah. you literally. It was the greatest period of music history. I mean, there's just. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no way. Yeah. In, in, in I was born in '78, but I'm telling you, '72, '73. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you. I'll challenge. I'll take anybody on at that point. I mean, it was for. But I, I guess here's the bigger question: is how? And I'll let you riff on this any way you want. I mean, how? Did that palette and creativity, that creative music, affect your poster art? My poster art? Well, I mean, just because of the, I mean, the idea is that you're looking at at Sun Ra doing circular breathing. Um, you're you're taking in these masters of the music. We didn't, you didn't consider them at the time, but you know, you look at it now, and they were directly connected to the masters. And I'm talking about all music. But I mean, mm-hmm. I guess it's the idea of saying when you sat down and, 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 and sort of came up with these ideas, it, you didn't, you weren't in a box. You felt freedom because the, the music, yeah. the musicians were free at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, that's, I mean, that's the, that's, that's the, uh, that's the approach I've taken ever since then no matter who I'm doing a poster for, because that's just, I mean, let me see. I improvise. I mean, I'll have, I'll have an idea of what I, I'll have an idea of what I want and I'll start working on it. And sometimes it'll mutate and come out completely different. (laughs) That's how I do it. Could you give an example of some of one of them? Mm, <laughs> I don't know. Well, I, I mean, know you know, I, I mean, maybe one, maybe one where you had sort of, sort of, not even a set thing, but you gave yourself permission to improvise, and it turned into something completely different. 
Yeah, well, that happens a lot. I mean, it's it's uh, um, it's hard to describe other than it it'll often take shape. It'll just take shape as I'm working. Dig. It comes out when you do, when you're doing it. I dig. Yeah, totally. Right. Yeah. Right. That's like music. That's beautiful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, uh, Michael, we have a, a game on this program uh, called uh, Name That Voice. Uh, I don't expect you to know who this is, but I just want you to take a listen to it, and then we'll come back and okay. break it down. Sure. And I read an article, uh, I think it was in the Harvard Geological Review, uh, something called Good Friday Experiment, which Tim Leary and a guy named Walter Pankey had conducted on Good Friday in, I think, 
No, I really don't have a clue right now. <laughs> that was my first interview with the late, great John Perry Barlow from 2015. Okay. And he was talking about the April experiment when you were... That was around, you were about 12 years old at Boston University, uh, and, uh, mm -hmm. and Ron, you're familiar with that, I, I assume. And, um, yeah, I've, 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 yeah. And, and, and then, yeah. so he wanted some, and then he wound up at Wesleyan, and um, he transcended, and then, uh, but I, you know, it was just, then, then he was talking about what was going on <laughs> later on in the clip. He was talking about what was going on in, in on the West Coast with the acid tests, and he was, horrified uh, you know i mean you know quote in quotes about you know people filling up bathtubs full of lsd and having mm -hmm. these mass hallucinations but i i like it because you you were you were um like the summer you were just sort of in sort of marinating in it i remember mario cipollina john's brother said that that the summer of love was the real summer of love was actually 66 67 yeah. was the invasion. Can you just talk That's about right. right? I mean, I want you and, and, and I, I want to I want to just stop talking. I mean, I want you to just talk about your experience with psychedelics. Um, the and and ultimately, you know, like like talk about 66 because 67 gets all the the publicity. Um, but in fact, the real freedom was was the year before. And then by the time you saw the dead in 70, um, you know how, cause that, that was the purest acid was legal at a certain time. Then it wasn't. And it was, I just, I'm curious about your, your experience with it, uh, at that time and, and how, and how the culture was shaped by it. Well, I had no experience with it at that time. Cause I was, I mean, 66, I, the 66, I turned 13. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. 67. And, you know, I mean, as far as, um, and as far as what was going on in San Francisco, yeah, I had some idea of what was happening up there. I was certainly hearing a lot about it. And, uh, and then of course, you know, in the, you know, years since I have, uh, you know, I've become friends with a lot of people who were involved in it at the time. So I've, you know, learned more and more and more about it. As, as far as my, I mean, as far as experiences with psychedelics goes, I mean, that didn't come along around for me until later. And it's hard to talk about because it's not like anything else. That's right. It isn't. And, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, what it does depends on who you are and who you are at that particular time. And um, I'd say it's a worthwhile experience. Um, you know what? You know. Uh, you know w w w w what exactly it all means. I couldn't really tell you. <laughs> what was okay? So, but I mean, talk about when you how. What was your first experience like? Was it? Um, I mean, all I'm saying is that uh, you know, for me in the late '90s. I, I did a lot when I got to college. Ironically, I went to Boston University. But um, at the time, it was no longer Sandoz, Acid. Uh, you know, people like Sam Cutler were telling me what was so amazing is that when it was legal, it was being made in all the universities. All the chemists were working on it in England and in, in, in the state. Yeah. And that's so revelatory. Mm -hmm. But by the time I started taking it in, it was 
some kind of placebo cocktail. It was not, uh, it was not clean. And so sometimes I got off. Sometimes I had a bad trip. Suffice it to say, <clears throat> it wasn't all uh, bread and roses, so to speak. Can you talk about? Um, well, I would say the first time it was, it was, it was very, very, very cheerful and happy. Yes, it was a very wonderful experience. And what? Is, and okay, that time seemed to be saying, "Don't take everything so seriously." <laughs> I love it. Yeah, take don't take take what you do seriously. Don't take yourself that seriously. Maybe. Well, no, no, I don't. No, I don't. I don't think it was. It wasn't. I didn't see it as being that specific. No. Okay, just just in general, don't be so. Don't take everything so seriously. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. And it's like, yeah, you're, it's, it's like, and I've heard this from other people. It's like, yeah, you're, 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 you're free to go and play. Yeah. Right. Um, when was your first time? Was it at a live show? Was it just in like, no. yeah. It was, it was at a party at a friend's house. Party at a friend's house, uh, you know, up on the, Twin Peaks in San Francisco, top floor of this apartment with this incredible view of San Francisco out the window. Wow. You, and, you know, you could yeah. go up on the roof where there was an even more incredible view up there. Do you think no, that... No, it wasn't at a show. No, it wasn't at a show. So, I mean, again, do you think... Um, well, I guess maybe the idea was, can you talk a little bit about... Um, you know, the, the cats that, that maybe you, the, your elders, uh, in the poster, if they were elders, uh, the Victor Moscoso's or the Stanley Mouse's, who, who were your elders that you, that kind of hooked you into the scene or did you just find it on your own organically? Um, I just started, I just started, uh, I started meeting these people because I was collecting posters, right? And so I started meeting some of, I mean, uh, the first two I met, the first two I met were, uh, first two artists I met were Randy Toot and David Singer. Mm. And I, I met them. I started meeting more people. And then I just, um, I just kind of became part of it. That's, that's, uh, it's, it was, it was like that. When you say take part, you know, you, you became part of it. Talk a little bit about how it worked. I just became part of their scene. I just became part of their scene. I mean, it really would, there was really kind of no more to it than that. I guess no. What I'm and saying they didn't is, even, yeah. they did, they didn't even, they didn't even know that I drew back then. Um, they just they they accepted me into their scene uh, for whatever reason. It was just like uh, you know in today's in today's world you like you get a, you get updates about a, a a concert of your band you know in advance you know what's going on I mean can like when you talk about can we just get down to the brass tacks of like when you say you became part of it how would you know would you say like oh I'm gonna take I'm gonna do this poster with you know uh, with Brian Auger and 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 John Mayall 
at this concert and this cat's going to, so you wouldn't overlap each other? How did you choose which concerts? No, 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 no. It wasn't like that at all because I wasn't really, I wasn't really, it had nothing to do with my doing posters at all. I was just kind of, I was just kind of doing, you know, it was, it was, uh, I was living in San Mateo County at the time and yeah, I was just kind of doing the local things down there. So it had nothing to do with that. I just, you know, I just got to know these people and I fit in somehow. That's what it was all about. I mean, as a, it, it's interesting because it's a different, uh, it, it's like a different uh, scene that I'm even, I've been poking around the, the Perry Lane scene and the Merry Pranksters and the, and the and the milieu of the music, but I mean, can you talk a little bit to to people that maybe won't hear this until after we've left this planet? What that poster scene, what those what those artists were about, and how ultimately how I mean, it's so interesting because without without the culture and the vibe, what's the music, right? I mean, you need to have that. It all goes yeah, together. Yeah. So, I mean, I, that's why oh, it, all, it all, it all went together. It all went together. Yeah. Uh, that, 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 that's very true. And, uh, I mean, I got a better sense of, you know, when I really started doing stuff was in the eighties when, uh, I started doing, I started doing flyers, designing flyers for John Cipollina's band. Oh man! And he, at that time, he was in about eight different bands, <laughs> and he was playing two or three or four times every weekend. And I started doing that stuff, and yeah, I was doing and 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 I was doing it as part of that scene. You know, it was it was kind of like the old San Francisco scene where. There was a there was a, a bunch of people who were at all those shows, and we all knew each other, and the audience and the musicians hung out together. So there really wasn't that uh, divide, that you know the the divide between performers and audience. Exactly. So, so, you know. That's that's kind of when that really came to life for me, okay? And at that time, and you know, like, uh, and by that time, like, I was friends with all the poster artists, and you know, I mean, by that time, they knew I did stuff, and they all they all liked uh, they all liked the work I was doing. So uh, and th there wasn't there wasn't any um, getting back to you know as far as us you know staying out of each other's way as far as to who uh, did what. Well, there wasn't any competition really. There wasn't. And I don't think, and I get the feeling that earlier on, you know, in the 60s, the Fillmore and Avalon days, there was no competition either. I mean, everybody was looking forward to what the other guy was going to do next. I would love, I would and love, they, I would they love you to, they, those, yeah. excuse me. I, I just would love excuse you. Me, to, I'm sorry. And no, it's okay. I would love you to talk about why you feel that or know that about your predecessors, no competition, like, cause that's so important about your, I, I, cause it was the same with musicians. I mean, I talked to the studio cats that were down in LA and there was so much work to go around that there was no competition today. It's very different. I mean, and we can get into that, but um, mm -hmm. I mean, that's you. Can you just talk about what your, 
the people that you connected with, maybe you didn't start really doing heavy creative content until the early 80s, but what did you learn about the genesis of how the whole thing began to begin with? Well, they've all, they've all talked about that. That's how I learned it. You know, they've all told, they, they all, they all, they all told me about, they told me about what was going on. Yeah, no, I'm asking, tell me, tell me. And the musicians. Yeah, yeah, and and all that. So, yeah, and it was, I mean, that was just a, uh, I mean, this was a new thing at the time. This is a new thing at the time. And it was, it was, it was an exciting thing and it was wide open. You know, uh, the possibilities seemed endless. So that's, that's why there was a feeling, you know, it was, that's why there was, there were, there was not this uh, competitive feeling because, you know, part, part of it being the, uh, um, like I said, the sense of possibilities, you know, these people, not only, uh, the, the artists not only, uh, uh, looked out to see, you know, looked forward to see what other artists were going to do, but they often collaborated together. Two, sometimes three of them would get together and do a poster. So it was, it was, um, and you saw that with the bands too. I mean, the, uh, you know, you'd see, you know, the, uh, you know, the Grateful Dead would play and, uh, and, uh, your man Jack would sit in with them or Gary Duncan would sit in with them. Right. Stuff like that. Wow. So, I mean, the, dude, Michael Dolgushkin dropping a lot of knowledge on the Jake Feinberg show. It's an honor to have him. I mean, um, I've, I went to interview Mario in up on the hill Gino's place, uh, I guess it's yeah. in Mill Valley, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. And yeah, I went in there a couple of years ago, and I have to believe that a lot of those flyers were, up, I mean, the wall was covered in flyers. I have to believe a lot of your flyers were up on that wall. There were, there, 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 there were one or two of them up there, yeah. When you, um, yeah, so talk, let's talk about that. When did, when did you, like, Let's talk Terry and the Pirates, Copperhead. Like, what was the what was like the seminal beginning in your mind of your uh, creative creating uh, you know flyers for 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 Chipolina? Uh, the um, there there had been one before that that I did through a through a, a, a promoter back in '79. But where, where it really began for me was uh, okay, the dinosaurs in Golden Gate Park in July of 1984. I, yeah, oh, dude, seven fifteen, seven fifteen. Holy no, cow, yeah, I, dude! There's, you know, you know. Obviously, you know. Maybe you, uh, there's an audience video of that on YouTube of, of that yeah, show. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. All right, continue. Yeah, so mm-hmm. continue, please. So yeah, and the way I got that was um, um, that I was okay. I was living on, um, I was living on. Pierce Street in San Francisco, Pierce off of Haight in San Francisco, mm-hmm. in this uh, flat uh, with an um, um, older hippie woman named Maritza and her uh, a couple other roommates, and I think one of her daughters was there at the time, and she was hanging out with this uh, at the time with this guy named Dave Whitaker. Uh, who's also known as Diamond Dave, and he was from. Um, Oh, what's the name of that place? Uh, Hibbing, Minnesota. 
yeah, Hibbing, Minnesota, or, or one of one of the uh, college towns around there. And he was the first beatnik that Bob Dylan ever met. Wow. He was a big influence on Dylan at the time. So anyway, he was living in San Francisco, and um, you know he knew I was doing art, and he was he was at our house all the time, right? And so he knew I was, you know, he knew I was trying to do artwork, right? And so he um, he knew Barry Melton said, well, they're doing this gig in the park. Uh, let me hook you up with Barry, and you can do a uh, see, see if you can do something. So I did something up, showed it to Barry, and he said, yeah, this is it. <laughs> and that's how I started doing that stuff. I mean, just for the for the audience, uh, Spencer Dryden, uh, Merle Saunders, Robert. I'm trying to think. Hunter was still in the band at that point. Hunter was still in the band, but not for much longer. For like about a month after that. Um, Chipolina and Barry the Fish Melton, uh, legendary cat, a dear friend of mine. Uh, that is so freaking cool. What was the so you would say that and Peter Di- Albin. Don't forget Peter. I'm Albin. sorry. I love. I've been. Yeah. I'm sorry, P- Peter. Of course. So you had yeah. remnants of Quicksilver, Big Brother, Country Joe and the Fish, uh, Jefferson mm-hmm. Airplane, and you know Hunter, uh, the songwriter for the Dead, but obviously a decorated musician uh, in his own right. Um, Diamond Dave, would you say instilled a chutzpah, charisma in you to or? Uh, to do to do this um i wouldn't put it that way but he was like a he he but but he was a big help at that time for breaking me in he, he was the one that said go go show this to melton is that right yeah yeah okay said, yeah uh-huh yeah can you talk about what that flyer looked like yeah i put uh, it was um um, it looked like, uh, okay. I, I did a collage in the middle of it. There was the, uh, a scene from the, uh, uh, 1906 fire, you know, this, this apartment, this apartment house across the street from the old city hall that was burning up. And I put a, I put a Tyrannosaurus in the middle of it. And then below that, I just stuck in a couple of um, uh, what I call dinosaurs of transportation, the ferry, the, uh, the ferry boat Piedmont, and one of uh, the San Francisco Muni's old white boat. I mean, this is. Uh, I'm just. So this all had to do with dinosaurs, right? Well, no, because I've cra- I mean, I've I've been to uh, to Barry's house up. I think by where you live in in uh, West Sacramento, and uh-huh. it, that so I, I think that flyer, correct me if I'm wrong, might have turned into an album cover. I don't recall. I don't recall that ever happening. I don't know. Um, well, just because the way you describe, just see this. Of course, they were called the dinosaurs, so who knows? I mean, that was pretty obvious. But um, like, how did it work? Again, we're talking 84, very interesting time uh, technologically. Um, were there, I mean, I, I mean, this might sound um, very obvious to you, but I'm curious about, like, um, did you give the original print to somebody 
and then they ran copies and then they put up the flyers or were you were you like a one man band so to speak I think what happened that that what happened that time was that uh my roommate Maritza knew a printer a printer named Eugene and I took it to him and he printed them up for me and then I brought the I brought the copies down to Barry oh, I love it that's how it happened then <laughs> um and was there any like uh I mean it was like a a service to get the word out or or if I mean in some ways if like you know you'll see today like you know refer a friend and get $50 off like if people found out about the through the flyers were you compensated in some way or was this just a matter of like merely doing something to help promote um as a public service that particular instance it was yeah because mm -hmm. it was a free show it was a free show was when did you show. yeah beautiful no i love it i mean when you going back to 70 berkeley community theater where where were you uh, that's that was said that was 72 thank you oh, i first saw the dead okay so winterland was was what it was 70 october october 9th 72 right so you but your first show was berkeley community wasn't it 70 yeah august 22nd 72 okay so 72 was the first year you saw the dead yeah but i'd been listening to them you know for like you know listening to them heavily for two years before that um where were you living at that time uh, in San Mateo, California, down the peninsula. I just wonder um, if you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, culturally, like by 84, you were living on Pierce near the hate, um, you yeah. know, but you go back to, and I, this is again before you were really able to get your hand, arms around the scene, but how, in your mind, how did... Um, it was, I remember there was a line from, uh, uh, Nicholas Merriweather told me in our interview, he said that, you know, every Mickey Hart had a statement around 68, 69, everyone in the hate was an artist, uh, in yeah. some way, shape or form. And that obviously lent itself to this incredible melting pot of, of music and culture and sort of, uh, liberation, so to speak. And then... It was palpable for a few years uh, through the 70s, but I just was curious about, you know, in general, um, when things started to change, when things started to, um, I mean, it's very evident that, um, you know, there was, by the late 70s, definitely, there was uh, a lot less... Um, um flex like accessibility am amongst the bands and the audience the way it once was um, obviously drugs different kinds of drugs had entered the scene which was detrimental um and then mm -hmm. obviously you just had uh this malaise uh i mean i i look at jimmy carter he was a very progressive president but we didn't clearly appreciate who he was and we brought in reagan and that changed mm -hmm. everything and i and I, how did it in your mind, like, I mean, you were, you lived through that time. Um, and I just wonder if you could talk to the audience about how it changed and, and, and how it changed the art. I mean, or if, if it just, if it changed, how it changed consciousness, because I mean, I, I look at that, 
like we talked about that early 70s period as just a magical milieu of culture and slowly but surely the lack like you said it was all a community and then it got all separated and you can riff on any well well um it kept it uh the san francisco scene shrank it shrank but it kept right on going (laughs) well put you know what you know when i when i when i you know when i started i mean when i started doing stuff for uh uh for John's bands, I mean that was it. That was that was uh, that was part of the San Francisco. That was part of the ongoing San Francisco scene. And you know, I mean, I wound up, you know, I mean, I wound up doing, and I wound up doing work for other bands. You know, Moby Grape, and you know, was still going. Uh, Big Brother got back together again. I did work for them. Uh, all that sort of thing. So, uh, um, yeah, it 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 shrank. It contracted. Uh, and as far as its uh, effect on the rest of the world, because it had a big effect on the rest of the world in the beginning, right? A huge effect. Yeah. Well, I think after it shrank, it stopped having that effect on the rest of the world. And it uh, just kind of became our own private party again, except for the Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead were out there, and they were, they were getting bigger and bigger and bigger all the time. So beautifully put. Why? I mean, why do you feel that, um, uh, like Jack and Yorma left the airplane and went off and did their thing? Uh, Big Brother got back together, but Quicksilver, um, you know, Chipolina had his side projects. Uh, it was it just the how did the dead sustain as an organization? Because you know, you talk to Peter Rowan and and people like that. Like when there was seventy four ish, when there was you know the olden and the way going on. Um, you know, uh, Peter said that the dead was like uh, this phantom ship that would be out in the ocean off the coast, and when they needed money, they'd send the longboards in and grab Garcia and take him out. Jerry really just would have preferred doing his own band, and and he really loved doing those side projects, but. How do you account for the fact that the Grateful Dead were able to, I mean, they got bigger and they got younger. And that was the most beautiful thing about your compendiums is just the write-ups from all the cats from all the different age groups. But the Dead were just a phenomenon. They just, they got older and their crowds got younger. And that's still going on. I don't have, it is, but... I just there's something I mean, there's something wrong with Dead Incorporated. I feel like, and I'm not well, one. I'm not one to tell the, anybody what to do. I just I look at what mm-hmm. Phil did. Phil wasn't a restaurant owner, and the dude is doing exactly what he should be doing. These these guys that are playing out the string um, in these Dead Incorporated or whatever. I mean, I to me they, their their time again putting the pandemic aside. I mean, they should be putting everything back into cultivating younger cats. I, I, they don't need the money. Um, and I, I, I just, I love what Phil's done. I think Phil was absolutely spot on. I, anyway, that's just my opinion. Well, well, you know, I mean, uh, what, what I mean is, I mean, yeah, okay, the, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not the same band anymore. You know, 
definitely not the same band anymore. But um, the fact that a band that hasn't existed in 25 years still keeps attracting younger fans. <laughs> I agree. Today, yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I. That's what I meant. I by did. That. I did. I did. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Totally. I mean, yeah. my daughters have been inundated with early 80s live Grateful Dead and they know the lyrics and they love it and it's it's just a beauty you know why in that time though why did they sustain and and why because for whatever reason it stayed interesting for them I'm saying why did they yeah yeah. go ahead and part of that is because, you know, just because of the nature of their live performances where um, they, uh, um, you know, it was never the same twice. And it was still, you know, I think, I think even towards the end, there was still a feeling that anything can happen. Yeah, so. the 90s were a little bit dicey. Uh, the uh, Did you, did, please tell me you went to, the Lion's Share in San Anselmo. I think I went there once. Okay, so because there was, a, I mean, Van Morrison was getting up there in '73 playing "My Funny Valentine." That had a huge impact on on Garcia and Merle Saunders. And those. did did you like how active were you in seeking out a, a lot of those side projects uh, from those cats? Like, uh, uh, well, I mean, I, I saw I saw Garcia and Saunders several times at the boarding house. Exactly. And at Winterland once and in Palo Alto. And then, you know, and then, uh, and then Jerry formed his own band, you know, first with, uh, first with, uh, uh, uh Nicky Hopkins and then with Keith and Don, and then it went on from there. And, and I saw, um, yeah, I saw, I saw, I saw that band quite a bit. I saw, uh, during the hiatus, I saw Kingfish. A lot. Oh. I thought, you know, I like King. I like Kingfish, but I like Kingfish in later years too. But I, I liked them back then. Uh, so yeah, I saw the side side projects. I, I missed Olden in the Way, unfortunately. I yeah, I was going to ask them. you about. What about Legion of Mary? Did you see them? I saw Legion of Mary. Yeah, uh, although I don't know if they were called. They called themselves that for that particular gig. Ron Tut. But, Ron uh, Tut was on drums, though. No, 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 no. Ron Tut wasn't on drums. I think. I think Merle Junior was on drums. At that gig, uh, Mer- so that might not yeah. have been called Legion of Mary, right? That's, uh, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, Mar- Mar- Martin Martin was there. Absolutely. Well, no, I mean that Gar- Garcia Saunders band turned into Legion. Um, Legion of Mary. That yeah. that is mm-hmm. so. Did you now? Phil had a band called Too Loose to Truck. Did you ever? Did you ever catch them? No, I never caught them. I have a tape of them somewhere, but I never saw them. <laughs> Dude, that there's one tape out there because I've interviewed Steve Mitchell and John Allaire. I mean, that would have been the funny. What did you love about? Because um, Chris Harold was a great drummer, Robbie Hodnot, yeah. uh, Matt Kelly. Mm-hmm. What would t- talk a little bit about those Kingfish shows? What was the vibe like? Because that kind of flies under the radar. Oh well, I mean, it was it was uh, it was part of it was. At that time, it was part of what we had to go here to go see, you know, instead of the Grateful Dead, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, and and they were, I mean, you know, you got, uh, you kind of got uh, Bobby's side of it there. 
and uh, and it was it was just they were good. They were just they were they were a good band, and you know and they could uh, they could uh, they could jam out as well. I mean, when they do they do hypnotize or Mona or one of those songs, and they could they could stretch. I mean, Hobnot was a good player. He was a great player, man. That 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 original yeah. group was incredible. Um, mm-hmm. What yeah, do you, they what were. you know? The thing about it is, I I'm gonna play this uh, name that voice for you again. I, I don't. It may be hard for you to get it, but I want you to. This is gonna lead into my next question, so take a listen to this, and we'll come back. Okay. I you know I can't speak for him because I'm not inside his head, but uh, what 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 happened was um, there. The Grateful Dead had been playing the acid tests and was, uh, Owsley was doing the sound, but there was, there was, a, there was a point at which Jerry wanted to, I think, break away from the kind of concept that, uh, uh, that Owsley and others had, that they were, they were sort of being led into. And he wasn't really, he felt that it, it was distracting from his concept of the music, is what he felt. And uh, so what he did is that he gave, walked away from the, 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 the pre-arranged equipment and system that, that had been set up. And he just went to a music store and bought a guitar and bought an a, a, a amp and said, I'm going to start playing this way from now on. And that's when uh, he, there was really nobody there. Alzi took, a, I guess, a, a little sabbatical from it. I'm not really... It doesn't really matter what all went on, but nevertheless, I, I sort of was cast upon that scene, thanks to my pal John Cipollina, um, who, and I'm still not sure if I'm pissed on him or for that, or I'm happy. He foisted that on you? Because well, because he was my pal, we ran together. We lived over here. There's a there was in Corte Madera. There was houseboats. Mm-hmm. We called the Corte Madera Slough. It's all been torn down and plowed away and returned back to so so called tideland, which is really a code word for clean up the water and build condominiums all around where our houses were. Right. Um, uh, but um, I the house what I lived on belonged to a lady named Phyllis Heath, who was a marvelous artist and a fantastically wonderful person who in her own right was, was a, a frontiers woman uh, based on uh, what a woman was expected to be back in those days sure. and how far she went in, in, in the different direction. Um, and the next door neighbor houseboat was a houseboat that belonged to a guy named Bobby Collins, who was actually one of the first guys to ever put on rock and roll shows in the Fillmore, the original Fillmore and stuff. Yeah. And Quicksilver was crashing at his houseboat. And so I started hanging out with, I mean, I had known John before that, but I, I didn't really, I, I, I hadn't really spent a lot of time hanging out in the music scene since, since John uh, got involved in that sort of psychedelic music scene. I, I was, I guess, a latecomer. I was working in a recording studio in San Francisco. Columbus Recorders? No, I, it was uh, before Columbus Recorders. It was a commercial recorder. Com- 53 you started there, right? Uh, 63. 63. Uh, uh, a place called, uh, uh, a guy named Lloyd Pratt, who was a fantastic jazz bass player. He was Downbeat Magazine Bass Player of the Year for 53, That's I think right. 53 and mm. 54. Anyway, um, so I knew about electronics, I knew about sound, and I uh, worked in a recording studio. So these guys were always hitting on me to come to see, hey, man, you got to come and see one of our gigs. They would always hit on me to work on their equipment and stuff, because in those days, nobody had any money. 
And so if an ant broke, that was disastrous. You know, you, nobody had enough money to feed themselves, <laughs> let alone take their ant to a repair shop, right? So um, I got kind of conscripted into, the, into Dano's amp repair service. And so John was always after me, come on, you've got to come to a show, you've got to come to a show. And so I went to the uh, old Fillmore at a show that Bobby Collins was producing. And the opening band was the Grateful Dead, and Quicksilver was the headline band. And uh, there's a whole lot of other stories I don't want to go into now, but some great stories about the girls' camp and, uh, and Olima and, uh, and places like that. But that's for another time. Okay, yeah, sure. No, someday we'll just, have just a we'll fun... Do, we'll just hang I'll, out. I'll tell you a story. I'll tell some fun stories. I can't wait. But uh, I got to the show with John, and uh, the music had stopped, and something had happened on the stage. Uh, an amplifier broke, and like, like I said, nobody had spares. Even if you broke a string, it was a drag in those days, let alone a broken amplifier. So uh, uh, it was like, is there a doctor in the house? And Chip <laughs> pushed me, literally, physically, wow. pushed me up onto the, up forward up to the stage and goes like that, fingered me. And so I went up on the stage, and I twitched with something and got it to work, and uh, the band started playing. I sat down on the back of the stage, and after their set was over, um, Jerry came up to me and introduced himself and said, hey, I want to thank you uh, um, for lending a hand and helping us out here. And so I uh, said, oh, okay, you know, um, I wound up going up into the dressing room uh, up over the stage in Fillmore, if you've been there, these little decrepit little rooms. Up was the old Fillmore. Yeah, the original old Fillmore. And uh, I shot the shit with... Uh, Jerry, and I never did hear Quicksilver play, I just sat in the dressing room and shot shit with Jerry. But one of the things is being accustomed to working in the studio and listening to monitor speakers and having control of the sound and stuff. Uh, this, in those days, sound systems were called public address systems. Michael, you want to take a guess at who that is? Well, that's Dan Healy. Absolutely, that's Dan Healy. When, when did you first cross paths with, with the Sonic Wizard? When? When did I first cross paths with him? Yeah. Oh, probably when he was, uh, I might have been when he was, uh, you mean, you mean, you mean as far as actually, uh, you know, meeting him and saying hi or whatever? Uh, well, I mean, I, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to figure out basic, yeah, that, that, like when you first connected, if you actually had a, uh, you know, personal connection or how you ran into him. I mean, obviously he was on the scene for, for quite a while. I, th I, th I think probably when he was doing work for zero, which was, uh, was a Kim Ox band, right? Yeah. 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 Um, and which would have been about 92 probably. It Although, you know, I saw, I, I saw his band years before, you know, the Healy Trees band. I oh, saw my, them please talk about that. that. Please talk about that band. I mean, I, that, I'm obsessed with the, with Healy Trees and also the, the, the Larry Laser, maybe. I don't know. There, there were these bands that were. Yeah, that, yeah, I never heard of Larry Laser. No, but, uh, <laughs> Healy <laughs> Trees, we saw them once at, at the, uh, uh, let's see, that's my other phone's ringing. I'm just going to ignore it right now. It's and, fine. Uh, Let it go. I'll let it go, but um, well, I need anyway, to go um, Healy Trees, man, because Kreutzmann played yeah, drums Healy in there. Trees, yeah, he played drums with them, and 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 at that particular big uh, gig, uh, Chipolina played guitar. Really? And we always wanted to, you know, we always wanted to go see whoever John was playing with, so we went. 
was at the old Waldorf, and um, and that was an interesting story because I was uh, I was uh, I was hanging out a lot with um, I was living in El Granada down by Halfman Bay at the time, and I was hanging a lot with uh, uh, my friend uh, um, um, my friend uh, Mike Fitzpatrick, my old friend from high school, Mike Fitzpatrick, who was with Ruth Pacala at the time. Ruth was Phil's girlfriend when the Grateful Dead first started. Okay, who I'm sorry, who, so we whose girlfriend? Phil's Got it. girlfriend. Got it. Okay. So we went to see Healy Trees, and, uh, and we were hanging out before they opened the doors. We were hanging out in the lobby. Then Billy goes walking by, and we just kind of looked at him. And, uh, and uh, Ruth goes, Ruth says, hey, Billy, you're not being very civil, are you? And she just kind of freezes in his tracks and turns around. It's like, oh, hi, Ruth. Gives her a hug, okay, and all that. <laughs> so anyway, then we go inside, and we got right up by the stage. And um, not a very big crowd at all. Not very many people in the place. So to liven things up, uh, Billy was trying to get me to dance on top of the table. <laughs> I said, wait, he chose me. He just, he just, he just pointed. He, you didn't know Bill, did you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. He just was like you. They dance. He or he, he or he, or he might have recognized me from from out in the lobby then. But right, you know, right, right. He, he's like, yo, you know, just, he saw us all. He saw us all sitting up front there. So <laughs> he, he wanted me to get up and dance on the table to liven it up. Um, yeah, they were interesting. Um, John brought his Dan Electro. Too bad he didn't play it. Yeah, right. That was the. Uh, that. And was Healy on bass or guitar or or? or? He, was, he was on. He was on guitar. He was on guitar. Yeah, because he had a band. Do, are you familiar with the Bicycle? No. Yeah, so no, that was with, with uh, uh, Butch Giannini, and and that was a hard driving. Uh, jazz, uh, by Healy's account, that was a, a pretty sophisticated jazz R&B blues band. And mm-hmm. um, and then Butch had a heart attack. They had a gig at the Whiskey A Go-Go, and, and he passed away. Anyway, that that, that was like – Yeah, that was like six, mid-60s, and Healy was playing bass. But that was like um, – I, I just find it so – can you – the reason I played that clip was because, uh, you know, it's – I wanted you to just talk about the legacy of John Cipollina. Uh, I feel like he, his spirit has been with me on this journey at from sometimes in a very strong fashion, in a very big way. And then sometimes mm-hmm. it goes away, but you know, now I connect with you and to know that you collaborated with him a lot. I feel like he was really, <laughs> I mean, you know, he was an unsung cat. Um, he left us too early, and I always like to talk to cats that knew him about what you think his legacy was to to music. Well, his legacy to music, well, just nobody played guitar like that. I mean, you know, and uh, I mean, you know, he was he was you know he had he had his own style, and. Um, it always seemed to me like he was like fully for and his style was fully formed right from the beginning. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, but, um, he, he was someone, he was someone, he, uh, you know, um, you know, he was, he was, he was a friendly person, great sense of humor. And, uh, he was in it for the music. 
you know, he wasn't looking to, when I knew him, you know, he wasn't looking to, uh, you know, make it big, get rich and all that stuff. He was, he was, he was playing cause that's what he wanted to do. Yeah. He also like was just so generous. Like <laughs> I remember interviewing Bill Champlin. He was in high school and they were playing mm-hmm. some women's club and, you know, John was like, after the set break, he's like, hey, man, come up and play. I think Bill was playing guitar, uh-huh. and that was like his first gig. Um, yeah. Did you know Gino at all? Yeah, I, 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 I met Dino. I met Dino. Was yeah, it? A couple of times. No, his father. His father, Gino. Oh, Gino. Gino. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, you know, I saw him once or twice. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. No, I, I know you weren't like, hey, you're John's when, dad. When I, didn't yeah. know, when, when I didn't know them, but, you know, when I really, when I started to do work for John, uh, Gino had passed away by then. He did. But Evelyn, you know, John's mom was coming to the show sometimes. What a badass so piano player she her. was. Yeah, she was a great piano yeah. player. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. I mean, you mm-hmm. feel like his uh, his parents were almost his dad was like a renaissance man. I mean, he literally yes. g- gave how he gave housing. Co- you know, as a musician, you couldn't even get a uh, you couldn't be eligible to buy a house or or uh, get a loan from the bank. Uh, he gave right. uh, Yorma his first. Ha- he got Yorma's first house. He got Jerry's first house. I know he hooked up uh, the bass player for Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Jim Fielder. That guy, you know, yeah. I mean. Titan. I mean, a serious Titan uh, of uh, mm-hmm. of humanity. Um, all right. Let, well, let's just break this down. We're going to have to do set two, but I I I just want you to talk about. Um, it's interesting. It says dead bass, right? Uh, song lists, yeah. song lists of the Grateful Dead, and yeah. and I'm curious because, like, my recollection of it is that it was actually set lists of the Grateful Dead, yes. right? So yeah. talk. Yeah. I want you to just talk about how this entire, um, you know, canon, compendium, well, I mean, it is, that compendium is running for a cool $140 on Amazon right now. They're, they're, they're the one I'm thinking of. Weird, talk about the whole genesis of the project and how, you know, just how it all began because that was well, because I just want to be clear. I got my first analog cassette in 97, maybe 98. Mm-hmm. It was a show from Starlight Amphitheater, 1982. It was an amazing show. Um, I yeah. loved, I loved Brent's um, piano sound. And then that compendium dead bass. I don't know. I mean, it was just, there was something it was like, I would sit at work and just soak it in. And the best part was that I saw that you were one of the, one of the, 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 the co, uh, writers, co, co whatever. But, but yeah. then, then uh-huh. it, the, the exciting thing was to see when you would step up and write a, write a, a blurb about one of the shows you were at, you were in there kind of sporadically. I'd see your, your name in there once in a while. Right. It right, was so right. cool. Yeah. It was so cool. I'm like, uh, but all the write-ups were good. So take, how did you, what was the brainchild? How did you decide who would write the reviews? I mean, the whole thing was just, it really helped me oh, uh-huh. get into my fantasy. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, how did this, well, it started for me 
after the uh, I went to the I went to the November tenth, nineteen seventy three show at Winterland, and afterwards I realized I, I remembered everything they played, and so I wrote it down. And you know, um, <laughs> amazingly enough, um, you know, years later when I uh, a couple years later when I encountered the recording of it, I. I was, it was, my list was hundred percent accurate, but anyway, I had that. And then I had a couple of tapes. So I wrote down the list of, uh, wrote down lists of what was on those tapes. And then I thought, look, 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 this is cool. I'd show my friends, you can, you can compare what the dead did to different shows. <laughs> and then, just, and then it just started to snowball from then. Uh, I would, I would write down what they, what they played at the shows I went to. And then if friends and I went to shows I didn't go to, I would ask them to write down what they played and and then you know tapes started you know more tapes started showing up although at that time i mean i wasn't very well connected so it was kind of like you know my circle of friends had this little you know had these little uh, uh you know some some complete shows of bits and pieces right. and fragments. <laughs> right. and, and, you know, some of them didn't necessarily sound very good, but we'd listen to them over and over again and not get tired of them, right? So great. And then in later years, I uh, then uh, um, I think it was in 77, I met some actual, some major tape collectors. And then, so this, uh, my, my set list collecting uh, took off after that. And, and over the years, and uh, I would, I would, uh, I would run into other people that had lists. But I always figured, oh, I'm sure that there are people who, other people who are doing this, and they're a whole lot further along than I am. Um, but then in '83, I met Dennis McNally. He was working on his. He had started to work for the band at that time, uh, but he was working on his um, 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 biography of the band. Yeah, Long Strange Trip or something, time. right? Long Street yeah. Church, he was working on it then. Interesting. And so um, I brought my uh, accumulated set list at that time, and, uh, you know, he I compared it with what he had, because he kind of considered the dates and the shows at that time the backbone of his work, right? And um, his, uh, his, I met his uh, um, uh, time, his name was Stu Nixon. And at that time, we decided, you know, um, Dennis uh, saw what I had done, and he decided at that point, well, this is going to become a whole separate project. And on the spring tour of 86, he met this guy named John Scott, um, uh, who was uh, working on that kind of project, but he was doing it on a computer mainframe at Dartmouth College. That was a school project to him. Holy cow. So I just want to be clear. So, oh, the, 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 the Dolgushkin brainchild... Some cat who wasn't as far down the trail was doing a college project on a computer. Yes. Unbelievable. And so that became Dead Base. Uh, we, uh, he, um, we gotten to know uh, Dick Ladvala by that time. And, um, you know, uh, so we thought we'd present it to the band because we wanted to get their permission and, you know, do, do, do this all on the up and up, right? Absolutely. And so uh, the story I heard was that Dick was going to present it at the band meeting. So he, um, he took this proposal and he showed it to Phil. And Phil said, oh, this looks really good. I think I'll present it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Phil, man. Wait, he was he, meaning he wanted to... He wanted to take credit for it? 
No, no, he just but he just wanted to present it. He just wanted to make the presentation himself. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He was he was pretty jazzed up about it. He was jazzed up yeah, about it. Right. Yes. Uh huh. So yeah, that's I mean that that's really how that started, and of course all the all the different um, uh, analyses of the basic information. Um, that was John's doing because he had the computer. I mean, I didn't know, I didn't know squat about computers back in those days. Yeah. This is so, I mean, first of all, can you tell, talk about maybe the most, at least in that early sort of, I don't want to say infancy period, but when you were kind of in the dark and maybe you met those tapers in 77 what was the hardest show to track down at that point? Like, what what was the one that the puzzle pieces, it took a minute to come together, but when you did, you were like, I'm going to get to every single show. What was the hardest? I don't know. They were all, they were, I mean. Was there just one where, I like, you think, couldn't you couldn't get, like, a post drums, like, you couldn't get the, I mean, there must have been just one part of a, any, it doesn't have to be the hardest. It's just, what was one that, or a year maybe that was particularly because you know some you know I I would assume that you know um, stuff <laughs> there were a few shows from seventy five maybe a, a handful with the four just four just yeah. four uh-huh. and then like seventy six you know it's takes a minute for people to get back into the swing of things and then well we got I mean we got what we got when we got it, it was <laughs> like. Uh, you know, because even when the first, when the, when the first, uh, when the first dead base came out, there was still a lot missing. You know, when we actually first put the book out, right, right. I mean, it was, you know, I mean, a lot of, you know, more recent stuff was in there, but earlier stuff, I mean, we didn't have most of 72 in there. We didn't have most of 69 in there. Uh, we still don't have most of '67. Still to this day, there, there, there's. I mean, it, that 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 is like the weakest year as far as recordings are concerned. I can. I love talking. This is that's in. So it was weak in the sense that. And why do you think that was? As opposed to the, you're saying that there were Warlocks years that were hardier in taping than '67. Well, well, war, well no Warlocks was nothing really, except for that one demo tape. But, uh, I mean, 66, the first half of it's better than 67 is because Bear was recording them. When he stopped recording them, then they were not being recorded in any uh, uh, um, um, uh, systematic fashion anymore. Oh, man. Dude. Then it, re- it really picked up in early 68, and you know why? Because they were recording, they were recording live gigs for Anthem of the Sun. That's why early '68 is so much better. Uh, there's so much better coverage of. I'm just not an. I'm, I'm not. I'm not an. I'm not a savant about the late '60s like I am about the early '80s. So, was Anthem was, right, was right. part of the was part of the the of, was part of that album a live album? They were looking for select. Oh yeah, yeah. it's it's but it's but it's um um. Interwoven. And there's, there, there's, there's, yeah, it's interwoven. It's interwoven, and then there's like bits and pieces of shows are interwoven in there, just because they were trying to, and you know, things recorded on different machines in different 
places right. oh, it did. where they would, I mean, I mean, Healy's told stories about this where sometimes, you know, he would like, he'd put his finger on the cat stand of one machine to slow it down to try to slow down that recording to match the speed of what they were, or whatever was going to go into. <laughs> I mean, there's just, there's just all these splices all over the place. And as, as I think as Jerry said once, some of them are not in obvious places at all. That is revelatory. So, I mean, tell me a little bit about, um, is it, is it, I mean, I, I just am shocked, although not surprised, to hear that there's this pocket in 67 of a weak taping or accountability or, I mean, do you have hope that you will track that stuff down? Do you have any leads? No leads. I suppose it's possible that there that there are recordings out there that nobody knows about, or maybe somebody, maybe somebody even wrote down what they saw at shows. But I doubt it, because nobody was much concerned about that at the, in those days. So you you do. I mean, it's 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 the idea that. Um, I just want to be clear that the, the the dates of the shows are confirmed in '67, but there's yes. no there's no set lists to. We know the shows took place. We just there were no set lists. Right, right. Wow. Exactly. Wow, that is. I've, I've been able I've been able to glean a little bit of going back into looking at videos. I've been getting, able to get a little more. You know, I mean, you know, videos from like. Okay, when they played in the Panhandler in Golden Gate Park, and some TV news crew went out there and shot a little bit of it, right? Right. I've been able to get a little more information. <laughs> a little, it seems like a most, little bit, yeah. But it seems it seems like at those sorts of things, you know, what, what you get is either Viola Lee Blues or dancing in the street. You know, it, it, the truth is that they were. I, it was not a formula trip, but it was. A lot more stretched out, a lot less songs, a lot more stretched out jamming, you know? Um, uh, yeah, to a certain extent, yeah. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, maybe yeah. That, that, that either here. I mean, so Bear, now what, the, <laughs> did Bear, um, uh, Owsley was, because um, I mean that guy, George Walker, you know, are, you, are you hip to Babs and Walker and those guys? No. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh huh. Yeah. So I mean, uh -huh. Walker was getting, uh, you know. So when did Dick? That was early, though. That no, I know that. Though. No, no, no. But I mean that. But even in the, I mean, Owsley was vacillating between, you know, sound engineering and then also uh, uh, creating his own psychedelics. Chemistry. Yeah. Yes, chemistry. Thank you. Project. Yeah. Um, uh -huh. Uh, I wonder about, um, so we have this, the gap in 67, then, then in 68, they were doing a lot of recording for trying to capture those bits. And that, and, yeah. And that was Healy who was doing that stuff. And then, and then, and then Owsley came back into the picture at some point by 69, I think. And then when, then, and then, like you said, Dick Latvala, when did he, when did he start taping in 71 or 70? Um, he started collecting in around then. Yeah, I think he, I don't think he, I don't think he was really ever out there, you know, um, uh, 
I don't, I don't, I don't think he ever recorded shows himself. He was a collector. He, what was it like he to was a collector? Yeah, when did when talk about that experience? I mean, I know what it's like to walk in to a uh, a Goodwill in Tucson where I live, and somebody's just dumped an entire collection of um, obscure jazz funk from the early '70s, and I can get sixty records uh-huh. for ten bucks. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like a kid in a candy store. What was yeah. it like in 77 for Dolgushkin when you ran into those advanced collectors? What did that look like? I wish they had the money for more tape. Because <laughs> I could have, I probably could have gotten anything I wanted. So the idea because there was... These people, okay. <laughs> these people were very generous, these people that I met. They were very generous. Where did you meet them? At, uh, at, at Well, I met one guy. I met... Um, I met a guy named Charles Connor at the March twentieth, nineteen seventy-seven show, hanging up near the near the uh, front of the stage at Winterland. We started talking to him. He had this big tape collection, and I had what perked his ears up was that I had gone to the December before. I had gone to see the Garcia Band at the Keystone Berkeley. Yep, Gregorico on and drums. I just, Unbelievable. I just, I just no no no, that was that was that was Ron Tut still. Interesting. So 70 I'm sorry, you saw 76. 76. So got it. 76. You're right. You're right. It was, yep. it was Ron Tut. You got it. Okay, so and and I brought my I, I decided that uh, I was going to go there and, and and get permission to um, plug my cassette deck into the board. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I, I got there early. I met this uh, young woman and I said, well, I explained to her what I wanted to do. And she said, well, let's see if Jerry's here yet. We go around the back and she said, okay, his car's not here. Wait here and Jerry's going to drive up and you can ask him. <laughs> so Jerry drove up in his solar BMW and he oh, got out of the car. I said, "Jury." He goes, "Yes." I said, "Well, I brought my deck, and I'd like to, uh, I'd like to, um, I'd like to uh, get a patch into the soundboard." And he said, um, "That's fine with me, but what you want to do is, when you go in, um, uh, you want to go back to where the mixing board is. That's you're going to get a better taste that way." Oh my! I God. said, "Okay." And I said, "Well, can I bring it in now?" And he said, um, "No, because if if uh, because that's going to make me an accomplice to." So uh, what you do is just just uh, just go in uh, go into the front door, be honest with them, and uh, um, and uh, explain what you want to do, and we'll take it from there. I said um, okay. Yep. So uh, I go back to the front, and fortunately, the guy there was there was one of the people who worked there saw me talking to Jerry out back, and he saw me coming in with the deck. So um, um, he said, "Come with me." So we go back to the backstage room, and Jerry's back there, and um, Jerry just kind of looks at me and nods. (laughs) (laughs) This is so awesome. The Keystone Keystone people were very nice about it. They uh, let me keep my deck in the coat check until it was time for me to bring it back to the mixing board. Dude, you were being treated like royalty uh, there. Yeah, yeah, I was. And so then when it came time, uh, I went back to where the room where the mixing board was, and Betty was there. And um, um, she said, okay, well, uh, we're going to have to do this quick. So just uh, she just uh, had me in a daisy chain behind all these, these other decks. That, and, dude, um, Dalgushin, so, you're blowing. So, I mean, we're talking about, I mean, that was a monumental effort 
and obviously some luck. I mean, I would have had a panic attack when Jerry's like, hey, man, just uh, it'll all work out. Just go to the front. I'd be like, this is not going to work. But then some dude saw you. That was the luck. Well, he, well, he, said, he said, you know, if they, if, if they said, if they give me any problems, have them come get me. Dude, I freaking love This is the greatest story ever, man. Oh, my God, dude. Come get me, dude. I'll be available in the back. But you're telling me that there were decks already just plugged. I mean, for the, for the band. For the band. I see. So the band would take Matt, take their own recordings of it home. Yeah. And so, or for a couple members of the band that night. The next night, I couldn't because there were more decks in line, and so there was no room for me. This was the 30th or New Year's? This, no, this was, this was seven, this was the Garcia band. Oh, I thought, okay, so you were, I mean, so you were talking 12, to. 122276. God, oh, wow. 122276, which would have been. That's, that's my, that's my recording that everybody, that, you know, that's, that's available. Well, I'm going to go, that's the first thing I'm going to, is there, is that, so that's, there's an audience recording on Internet Archive that I can download? It's a, it's a board. It's a board. You can't download boards off of that, but I can listen to it. No, but and there's no Garcia band on Internet Archive. But if you go to if That's you true. go to a uh, if you go to like a site like Sugar Megs, you can listen to it. I'm going to listen to it. I mean the that band that was Moldauer and Donna Jean, right? No, no, Maria was not there yet. It was it was Keith and Donna, uh, um, Tut, Khan, and Jerry, and a pedal steel player. Who? Yeah. Who was who was playing yeah, pedal? Right. Who was playing pedal? I think it was John Rich. That is wild. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So um then flash anyway, fo- yeah, so flash forward to I see had he's, this tape. Right. And at Winterland I told this guy Charles that I had and he said, Oh well come over to my house. I got all this stuff. <laughs> and so I went over to his house, he had a and and, and the same that same night after I met Charles, uh, there was this friend of ours who was telling us that he knew these other people had a bunch of tapes. He went over to their house, and they had this huge collection. So anyway, these major connections the same night, right? Oh, my God. So it went over to Charles's house, and he'd called Bob Mankey to come over because I had this Garcia tape. Mankey? So I met Mankey that night. Oh, my God, dude. I know that that name is... That's so beautiful. He was so... like he was like the king of yeah. tapers on the West Coast at that time. <laughs> Uh, you're making my day, dude. I, I so you. I mean, what was it like five in the morning when you finally stumbled out? I mean, how did you possibly? And 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 what was the? Because I mean, I would. Well, been... this was this was, this was some weeks later. I went over to Charles's house. Okay, so it wasn't the same night, but the, the, but it wasn't the same night. No. And what was the? Even though at that point you recognize you were not the only one doing this or at least well i i, no, I still hadn't met anyone else who was doing that, that that's but what he, i mean he, he was yeah. but he was he was more he was more you know material for me to use right oh my god i mean he a ridiculous resource for me. unbelievable i mean charles charles had his whole collection of set was typed up in a little book on a typewriter he typed yes. it up this is and of course that's what i did I, t- I used to type well, of course. To my set list up. Yeah. Um, can you, <laughs> this is so freaking crazy. I mean, now you are part of the um, library system in the state of California? 
I'm, I, I work at the California State Library. That's a state institution, and it's down, it's down there across the street from the Capitol. Um, I'm curious about, this is just, you know, because my pocket and, and what I want to really joust with you about in a, in, a, in a fun way is the essentially, you know, 79 to 84 um yeah uh couple questions did you have you have you devoted a compendium to the garcia band we've yeah it's 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 in it's in the it's in the 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 last dead base yeah the garcia band and 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 are there any are there any years that are soft like gd67 oh i think earlier on there are yeah like maybe 1971 72 it gets a little more filled in after that well because um when i interviewed the late great howard wales you know he said that the cat who ran the matrix and i'm sure you might have even been at the matrix uh but you know the the, Mm, no no, i I never was okay no um the the cat who ran that uh recorded every single show that came out of there. That was kind of the the birthing of the Garcia band, I think. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it was. It kind of was. Yeah, yeah. So, and those that, that's when he that's when he started playing with Howard and John Kahn, and then that's when he started playing with Merle too. And exactly, and Bill Vitt, and that's when that uh, and Bill Vitt, and Bill Vitt, yeah. and that's when. Uh, so your yeah. seventy mm-hmm. seventy one is kind of. A little bit incomplete, you would say, but other than that, you kind of. I, I would, I would, I would say so. Yeah, uh huh. So seventy two is not, does not, is not, there's not a lot there either. Yeah, because I think the dead were incredibly active. Uh, uh, they were, but there, there were shows, but there just no, there just how many circulating recordings of them. Um, was Mankey and, was, and the guy and the guy who was recording at the Matrix was recording way back in sixty six too. What was his name? That was Peter Abram, right? And now, and and nobody knows where all those recordings are. I think. I mean, I remember talking to Wales about that because I mean, you had some wild experimentation going on. Were you aware? You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, in my book on the pranksters and Wavy and and the Grateful Dead side projects, um, Mike Clark, who was the drummer with the Headhunters and Herbie Hancock told me a story that um, at the Pierce Street Annex, which is probably a venue that was close to the house you were living in in 84, um, back in... No, no, it was was way... The Pierce Street Annex used to be the Matrix. Uh, Thank you for... By the way, you you know I I was not around for this, so, you know, you just correct me. And it was way, 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 way almost on the other side of town from me. Were you aware... Be that as of May. <laughs> were you were were you hip to, one of the passages and the excerpts in my book is from Mike Clark, who not only played in an avant garde jazz band with Keith Godshaw in '67, but then in '70 mm-hmm. Vince Guaraldi told him one night bring a bigger drum kit, and Mike's like why? Mm-hmm. And he's like because we're gonna play, Garcia's gonna play with us, and yeah, uh-huh. in '70 was Garcia Stewart McCain uh, on bass. And, uh, and, uh, and, and Vince and Jerry, and it was, it was the, I mean, I haven't heard a recording of it. I don't think there's a tape that exists, but I mean, it was some out, out crazy music. Were you aware that Jerry had played with, with Vince? 
Yeah, well, a friend of mine uh, who went to he went to SF State around seventy in the early seventies, right out of high school. He was, he was an old high school friend. Right. Uh, he said that he once at 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 San Francisco State he saw a jam with um, Cal Chater, Vince Guaraldi, and Garcia. What? Yeah, dude. Is that? I mean, what are you? Wait, wait. Where is the? Who, this is blowing my mind. Jader, San Francisco State. Yeah, Jader, Garaldi, uh, and Garcia. And what? I'm sorry. What year do you? Does he approximate that at? Or oh, this is probably seventy-one, seventy-two, right around then. Do you have any? Um, I mean. You have any idea? Any idea when it was? No, I mean, no, no, no. I, I you have any idea how Jerry would have? I mean, not that. I mean, San Francisco was a melting. I mean, maybe. I mean, Merle was connected to all the cats, so maybe yeah, that, that's how they was. got. How, you know, because I mean, Miles and I've interviewed. By the way, uh, Merle Merle Junior never played an instrument. Uh, Tony Tony played bass. So when you saw that I band, Merle Junior, I thought Merle Junior played drums. No, Merle, Merle saw no, 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 not, no instruments for that cat. It might have been Paul Humphrey that you saw. It was a Maybe black... it was, but it didn't look like didn't look like Paul Humphrey. You, you, you know the cat. I'm, know. T- you, I'm talking about the the. Stu- I, I, I could, I could, and I could swear I've seen Merle Junior play drums in later years. The only cat who ever played with with Garcia was Tony on bass. When John would Tony played. Yeah, John, right. John, and John and Vit would get gigs with um, Brewer and Shipley in Colorado. Very high-paying gigs, so they'd take mm-hmm. off, and then uh, they'd need a drummer. And uh, and then Tony remembers coming home from San Jose State, and Merle's like, "You got to play bass." And I think Steve Parrish foisted those tapes on him, seventy-three. But no, as far as Merle Saunders, who runs the the, the uh, Phoenix and San Rafael, and the, you know, dear friend, yeah. no, 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 no musical acumen for that cat. Um, oh, okay, okay. So I'm mistaken there then. No, it would be interesting to find. <clears throat> it's probably Paul Humphrey, but the, um, you know, this is Michael. I'm very. I have. Um, I wanted you to talk about the, the um, the prolif the propensity of of because like there's so much. What am I trying to say here? So there's you know there was uh this interesting uh thing where there's 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 some videos from that are in public circulation from the early 80s like uh someone a lot of audience vhs stuff uh seattle yeah. 79 uh manor downs uh there's um a couple there's the lighting crew did one uh from eugene 84 uh there's mm-hmm. um <laughs> and so there were but yet, I also through little tidbits, people will say, "Oh, there was a in Denver in '79. There was a TV crew filming, uh, and they definitely mm-hmm. there is recorded stuff." Or, uh, you know, there was a show from Grass Valley '83 where somebody said, "I saw video footage of this stuff." Do you mm-hmm. have you are you do you know if if any other video is accessible? I only ask because you work for the state library, the state library of California. Is there a full amount of video available that is not necessarily publicly available? Not that I know of. I'm, I'm, I assume there is some, but I don't know about it. Mm-hmm. 
it's always fat. I always want to get, what was your view of the, you were clearly ensconced in your mission and purpose by 83 when you met McNally. What, what is your view of the band? Um, and I, I mean, pre 85, 85 got a little bit, um, popped out. It was a 20 year anniversary. Um, 84 was magic. I, I think you might've written the review of, of Augusta, Maine, 84, maybe not. It's the best. No, it's, no I, that wasn't me. That wasn't, that wasn't, I loved the one when I saw your name on, it was just so great. I mean, those reviews, then you, the coolest thing about for me, I mean, maybe this will give you some satisfaction. It's just for somebody who never saw them was a tape, tape collector, loved collecting tapes when analog was still there, you know, even kind mm-hmm. of right alongside CDs. Um, you know, it was just cool to be like, to read about, you know, like Ventura, uh, 730 which is an amazing show 73083 and someone talking oh, yeah. someone talking about just Phil just dropping bombs the whole show and then mm-hmm. being being able to get an audience recording and then like you know listening to it and measuring up to those notes yeah. not that cuz yeah. th- you're telling me most of the cats that you recruited uh I mean in in some cases they might have been the only person at the show right you wanted people that were actually there well, uh, I don't say th- I don't think we ever specified that. So you didn't because, care. I mean, yeah. I, I go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I wrote I wrote lots <sighs> of reviews of, of tapes I had of shows I didn't go to, and I know many other people did as well. Can you talk yeah. about that roster? I mean, you were sort of the manager. You filled out a twenty-four man roster. How did you choose? A lot of those names are not recognizable. Uh, Stu, uh, Stu, that name now comes back up because. He's not, he's credited on the on the front cover, but there was a lot of mercurial. How did you fill out your roster? Who made the cut? We just uh, asked people. We just it's like whoever wanted to write reviews. <laughs> we asked we asked our friends. Oh man, that's, that's how it that's how it was. I love it, dude. Oh my god. It, it, so I mean, it, but I mean, was there a threshold? Like uh, like some of the reviews are you know there's just like. You know, like it's just so spot on. Like the Augusta reviews, like Garcia saying "Mountain Dew, Morning Dew" with a ma- with a a desperate edge, and there's actually video of that show, and you can see people at the show testified that the the light that was coming down on Garcia, he looked like yellow and green. Uh, uh-huh. Were you aware? It was we didn't have the paparazzi. There was no the media was not nearly as invasive. Um, clearly, there were no smartphones. Um, and a lot of cats that were just heads going to the shows didn't seem to really be aware that Jerry should have been dead. I mean, is it, were you, was there a, were you aware that of how ill and how in bad shape he was? That he was having problems. Yeah. I, I, I was aware of that. Yeah. Problems is putting it lightly. I mean, problems is like, you know, I mean, having an addiction or, I mean, this cat was like. I mean, I don't know how he even lived. He had doctors putting drugs into him to keep him alive. I know, I know. Okay, I see he was trying to call me here, but I will, I will. No, uh, no, no. Listen, we, we can we can we do um can we do a set two in the near future? Yeah, no, no. I'm not going to answer this. Okay. Oh, yeah. No, I, can you talk? Oh, I will. I will have to take a break sometime soon. Though. No, no, no. We're, 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 we got five minutes left. I just want you to talk about. Your perception, early '80s Grateful Dead. In my mind, coming out of the coma, 
um, Jerry uh, was never the same, rightfully so. I mean, he, he had some great years, but um, 83, they were still playing college gymnasiums. Uh, Reagan, Reagan had not fully asserted himself, although I hear the DEA was on the premises in the summer tour of 84, uh, the war on uh-huh. drugs. Things got very – there was a malaise – um, a lot of people yeah. were, you know, bugging out. And I don't want to say just dep- – it was a depressing time. Jerry was emblematic of it, yet it's my favorite time because I do feel like the guys in the band collectively, maybe they weren't obsessing about it, but they probably did think, I know they did, that en- that any show could have been the last show. And I just wanted you to yeah, talk I'm, about I'm sure they thought that. Exactly. I, w- I would imagine that they thought that. I mean, personally, my own experiences of what I saw, I did. Uh, I I I enjoyed the shows. I thought the band was playing well, and uh, I thought I thought uh, I thought Jerry was playing well. I mean, if you listen back to the listen back to the tapes, Jerry was playing well. He was playing amazing. What did he do? What did he do when he wasn't on tour? He sat in his house and practiced all the time. That's what he did. He always had a guitar in his lap, you know, with the TV on, right? (laughs) Smoking cigarettes, maybe not even taking a puff, but he'd light up a cigarette, you know? Right. That's what he was doing. No, I mean, I thought that musically, I thought musically, I thought that era was quite satisfying for me. I enjoyed all those shows. Brent was amazing in those years, too. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and, yeah. and it was amazing how he transitioned. You know, but one thing that just popped into my head, like, do you have any information on Rolling Thunder? Not really, no. Because... I think I, think yeah. I, I, think I met him once. No, well, I mean, because uh, I... There's this very sort of hidden time when Garcia was really ill had a huge ailment. Um, Billy was also having very big physical problems. And uh, Rolling Thunder, um, uh, at least in Jerry's case, uh, he was Jerry was very ill. Rolling Thunder agreed um, to heal him. And mm-hmm. in return, um, he requested that he wanted to uh, sleep with with Nikki Scully. <laughs> that was the trade-off. But I'm just trying... I've, I've, I've read that, yes. So, I, I'm, he was... <laughs> I mean, was there a case early on that that where they Native American medicine was really involved? I, I feel like... I know Mickey did an album with Rolling Thunder, but there's no, under, yeah. there's no understanding about like what his significance was to the... I mean, it seemed like that they were... It was almost like a natural medicine man for the band at one time and it's shrouded in mystery well um i mean i've heard that too i'm really not i I don't really know much about that i mean it's this has been such a dive man 67 dead what are we still what i'm let me i want to get on the on the case here i mean how many shows are we are you thinking are are not not uh, in circulation or i mean most of them most of them how many are not in circulation 
Okay, so how many are? Well, how many? How many yeah, how many? How many are? And so, I mean, yeah, and, and how do you know that we're? Well, I'm, I'm just, I'm just flailing around, but how, yeah, how many are currently on the books in sixty set from sixty? Uh, let's see how many. Uh, let's see one. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this in my head. Uh, <laughs> please understand. Yeah, one, you're doing a good job. Two, three, four, five, six, seven. Um, eight, nine, ten. I'm counting thirteen. That's not that's not counting the these these videos I was talking about that I that I went and, and you know uh, got you know got the audio from, which are fragmentary anyway. <sighs> yeah, thirteen shows maybe. Who was your favorite? I mean, Menke was the hometown favorite. What what were your favorite audience? Who was your favorite taper? My favorite taper. Well, because like there's these guys yeah. like that. I mean, you you can like like uh, I don't know, man. Like I mean, when I dive, I mean, especially that taper. We can pick that up in the next session because the the taper section was was a fascinating sort of. I mean, before that. You had mic stands at the at the Greek, popping up ten feet from the band. I mean, they were everywhere. I mean, the mm-hmm. recordings were insane. Um, and, yeah, yeah. You know, I know Jim Wise. I mean, I, I mean, I had several. I mean, you know, Menke's one of them. I know. You know? I Menke was uh, great. And and uh, you know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, uh, Jerry Moore made good tapes. He did. He did. He did. And uh, and um, who else? I mean, uh, there 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 were others. Uh, I'm going to go back and a, fr- yeah. a, fr- a friend of mine, Scott Stevens. He he made some great tapes of the uh, of the New Year's '83 run because you know it's like they were you know the the the, the, the you, you couldn't walk across the floor by the by, by New Year's because you know in front of the the board was you know. San Francisco Civic was pretty much square shaped, right? Right. The board was at the back of the floor and in front of the board all the way to the stage were tapers. <laughs> but boy, they they but boy, those tapes were sounding good by that last show. Um um Jay Abrams, this guy I went to high school with, he made he made damn good tapes. Wow. No, 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 I mean, yeah, we're talking and when you talk about Stevens and and this cat from high school tapes that they started to get their teeth into really getting quali- doing quality taping by late seventies yeah. or when mm-hmm. when when do you when was that? No, this is this is mid eighties. I'm talking oh, about. Oh, this is so guys. great. This is so. Did okay. you? Yeah. And then and and then there was this this guy Jeremy Witt, his another guy I went to high school with. But in seventy four, he taped the Reno show, the Santa Barbara show, and the um, and the. Um, Oakland show, Oakland, the Oakland stadium show. And that tape, that tape he made of Santa Barbara, you know, wall of sound. Right. Right. I mean, that was, that was, that's, that's on the, that's on the archive. Check it out now. Okay. And that's with, is that with, with Ned Lagan? No. So, no. so he, wait, wasn't, he wasn't, give me the date no, on no, the, give me the date on the, on the seven in the show you're talking about 74, which what's the date on that? Five twenty five twenty five. Five twenty-five seventy-four. Oh, that is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and, and you know, as even though you are, I mean, it to me, this is so cool that you. So I just want to be clear. McNally said at a certain when he looked at what you were doing, he just said, "Okay, so this is going to aid in my research, but this is clearly a separate project." Yes. 83. That's pretty much what he said, yes. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's do set two real soon, okay? Okay, let's do that. I'm looking forward to it. It was an, I'll get this up later today. Please share it. It was an honor, man. Thank you so much. Well, I'm, 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 uh, I'm uh, um, happy to do it. It's an honor for me. Ah, mutual. Have a beautiful day, Michael. You too. All right, later Bye. on. Just a tremendous, tremendous uh, situation right there, um, dealing with a profound researcher, librarian, uh, poster, uh, artist, and uh, uh, all things dead base, Michael Dolgushkin. We'll do it again. Happy Saturday. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. We'll see you later.